at the new 11FS offices in Finsbury Avenue, London, for episode 116 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you EOS maker Block.1 fined $24 million by the SEC over unregistered security sale. Swiss Stock Exchange 6 lines up buyers for its initial digital offering and Fidelity Digital Assets to provide custody for Bitcoin Derivatives Yield Fund. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by a debutant. Uh, making his Blockchain Insider debut is Richard Cohen, who's General Counsel and Legal Product Architect at Navora. How are you doing, Richard? Yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks for having me in your lovely new studio. I know. First guest in the new studio. Well, How does it feel? Very privileged. Uh, uh, it's great to be here. Comfortable. Uh, just remind everybody what Navora does. So we offer a platform that will automate uh, the issuance and ultimately the sort of lifecycle management of a financial instrument. Um, we Our platform actually is, is really about automating a lot of the very cumbersome processes that currently exist in, in primary markets. Phenomenal. Uh, and pe- we'll give people all the details where they can find out more towards the end of the show. Um, but let's jump into the news, because uh, if you've not heard of Renovora, you really need to, to look them up, people. Um, but the first story this week comes from The Block, and this is about Block.1, confusingly, not The Block, um, agreeing to pay a $24 million penalty for the unregistered EOS initial coin offering the SEC announced on Monday. The co-director of division enforcement, Stephen Pikin, said the SEC remains committed to bringing enforcement cases when investors are deprived of material information they need to make informed investment decisions. Block.1's statement said that its ERC-20 token is no longer in circulation and will not require the token to be registered as a security with the SEC. Hmm. A total of 4.1 billion US dollars has been raised by Block.1. So the SEC fine amounts to 0.0058% of the initial raise. Uh, Richard, when you see this, what was your initial reaction? Uh, I mean, I think it's fairly sort of typical of a lot of what we saw during sort of the, the boom in the ICO market, but effectively a view that these were instruments were in some way sort of quantifiably different to what had gone before, when in reality, many of them were securities. And the fact that they were happening on a blockchain didn't really change the fact that they were securities and you needed as a result to follow all the relevant rules and regulations in regard to that. And and the SEC had probably been, you know, the most vociferous about clamping down at what it saw as you know, illegal activity, um, which is fairly typical of, of how the SEC approaches the market. It is, but it's uh, it's interesting during that whole time the of the people saying the SEC are coming, the SEC are coming. You know, they hadn't really made uh, a move against a big name uh, until now. This is the first real strikeout against one of the bigger ICOs, and I think Block One is arguably the biggest. You know, that percentage of the amount they raised is incredibly small. I mean, does this mean you can? Uh, I guess it doesn't mean you can get away with flouting uh, sort of SEC rules, but. Uh, What sort of signal do you think this sends? You're right. It's a relatively small fine compared to the amount raised. But I think as well, you know, you mentioned it took a long time for the SEC to come. And I think, uh, and having worked also with them and spoken to regulators during a lot of this process, I think part of the reason for that is a, a while was spent 
getting their heads around what this was and yeah. identifying and agreeing an approach, which, as you can imagine, at, at large kind of regulators, is not necessarily straightforward. Um, in terms of the signal it sends, you're right, wasn't a massive fine compared to the amount raised, but I think it, it shows now that you don't want to be doing this. And I would imagine that in future, were people to do this, you would see larger fines. So I think there's something, uh, yeah, that's, that was kind of the, the point I was looking at. There's something interesting here about the precedent it sets that you can't do this. But also, um, there's a number of uh, lawyers on Twitter, Marco Santorini, uh, Stephen Paley, many others who've given hot takes on this, which you should definitely check out. Uh, if, if you're not in crypto Twitter, you need to be because there's some great, great stuff in there. And the one consistent theme that comes out of a lot of those is, is just how effective the Block.1 sort of legal defense appears to have been uh, and the, the points that they've put forward, in, given that they were entering what was arguably uh, a very ambiguous marketplace at the time. But uh, going forward has less ambiguity now the SEC has, has kind of made this, this judgment. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, having worked in private practice, actually, when a lot of this was first coming around, and frankly, being one of the people who was advising clients on this, there was a lot of uncertainty. And there was, frankly, a lot of fairly tortuous discussions, particularly with US securities lawyers around what this would mean and what the SEC approach would be. And, and you know, some of those lawyers were, were involved in some of the very sort of early stages and, and took, you know, approaches that that probably don't take now. Um, and that, that's simply because it was a nascent market. I think the SEC are pretty clear on their approach now. I think this is a reflection of that clarity. And as a result, I think if you were to now try something like that, that the SEC disapproved of, there would be a very clear response. Probably it, much it, which, is, which is interesting, isn't it? But is there a credibility issue um, that, that comes with having been seen to be one of these people that then gets fined? I mean, uh, the financial services sector is not immune to fines. You know, it has also, does this just mean that the sector is growing up now? It's getting fines and figuring itself out? Or is, you know, Block.1 still potentially in a gray area given, you know, it's links to Puerto Rico and um, and kind of uh, potentially not centering itself in, in a financial center of gravity? Or do they have to do that to get away from some of the uh, some of the challenges of what they see as overburden some bureaucracy? Well, just tackling that last point first around, do you need to be in somewhere that, that maybe there's less red tape or less bureaucracy? And I would say in blockchain world and security tokens, that doesn't help you at all. Mm. So one of the questions that we get asked a lot and that I used to get asked a lot was, where should I set up? Mm-hmm. And I would always say to, to people that frankly, that's the thing you should be least worried about. It's not about where you set up. It's about where you're going to go uh, and where you're going to seek to get your investor base. And the largest pools of capital, be it the US or in major kind of Asian jurisdictions, means you are going to be coming again up against, you know, properly regulated markets with regulators with teeth, the SEC probably being the strongest of those. Um, And you're going to need to comply with the rules in those markets in order to raise any sort of capital. And frankly, where you come from is much, much less important than where you are going to in terms of where your investors are. As you look at this as somebody involved in the world of digital assets in regulated markets, how do you think this uh, sort of impacts the perception of the broader subject of digital assets, crypto assets? Because those terms are starting to be used interchangeably. But it, it strikes me a little bit that the world of regulated financial institutions are looking at tokenization uh, it, with real seriousness uh, with uh, and with a real intent to materially alter how they operate. 
However, there is still this credibility question sort of out there on the horizon and, and headlines like this don't help. No, I think that's right. I mean, and that probably goes a little bit to your point around is the sector growing up and does – I mean, I would not subscribe to the view that because it has a fine, it's now in the same bank, now in the uh, same uh, bracket as banks who have also had fines. Uh, yeah. uh, and I don't think that getting that fine sort of shows indications of maturity. Frankly, the analysis that we did and that was done around this showed quite clearly right from the start. And I think actually – you know, some of my colleagues at Nibura wrote about this right at the beginning, um, that these were securities and there were rules to mm-hmm. comply with as a result. Um, I mean, in terms of sort of making sure that you you sort of do comply with the right ways and, and sort of digital assets moving more mainstream, I think you had John Whelan um, on the show and we, we worked with them on the, the Santander blockchain bond issuance. Um, and... I mean, that, that was a story much more about, you know, how to automate and, mm-hmm. and what sort of additions blockchain would, would add to that. But in terms of sort of compliance, you know, there are there are entities out there now issuing digital securities in full compliance with regulations. And the, it's perfectly possible to do. Uh, it requires you, A, to properly identify what it is you're issuing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, one of the marked things about the ICO sort of period where people thought they were issuing something different to what to what they were. Uh, and then once you've identified what you're issuing, it's just a case of identifying what the relevant rules are in the markets that you want to target. Uh, and they vary as between, you know, particularly Asia, Europe and the US. And then ensuring that your offering is only going to the right people in those markets and that you put a pl- in place appropriate sort of technological solutions to ensure that you can only go to those people. And that, that's a big part of when we operate in in the digital asset space, what we try and offer. And, and it's the sophistication of that because there were um, kind of, again, some, some analyses that came out of the, the conclusions that said uh, they, they had put in place some measures to prevent U.S. Uh, persons from accessing investment to EOS. Uh, but it was seen as sort of, uh, you know, a very straw man defense because uh, whilst they'd put in place an IP block for US domiciled uh, internet addresses, anybody with a VPN could get around that. And they had giant billboards at Consensus in New York advertising investment. Now, arguably, that's a conference of global investors coming into New York, and you can make a defensibility argument, I'm sure. But that said, it was pretty blatant um, in some of these cases. Yeah, I, th- I think that, yeah, th- th- those arguments were fairly weak. And I think we, we identified fairly early on that they weren't things that were going to work. Um, IP IP blockers, you know, it was an idea thrown around right at the beginning that we thought might be a solution, but but not ultimately a solution. What you really need to do here is have, through the relevant regulated entities, which frequently in the US will mean involving a broker-dealer, um, do a proper sort of investor profiling. Are you only going to accredited investors? Diligencing that, so ensuring, for example, on your platform that they have a means to upload a proper sort of letter, either from an accountant or a law firm or a broker dealer, certifying them to be accredited investors. Doesn't that, that all feel very manual to you and very sort of um, financially excluding to the unsophisticated investor, to the to the. Uh, entrepreneurial, technically sophisticated individual who may understand EOS far better than any investor does. They may, and you've hit upon there one of the challenges in the digital asset space, which is that you are dealing with rules and laws not written for this market. 
Um, it, and there's a lot of an exercise of a square peg in a round hole. But Analog as, laws for a digital asset. Pardon? Analog laws for Correct. a digital asset. Uh, we need some digital laws, um, which uh, which I'm sure the, the guys at Claws and Monarchs and everywhere else can, can help us with at some point. So I'm going to move us to the next story because I think speaking about digital assets, um, there's a story on Coindesk about uh, the Swiss stock exchange Six lining up buyers for its initial digital offering. Now, we did have Six on last week's show, so I'm not going to cover this in too much detail. But um, actually, uh, just after we had talked to them, they issued a press release uh, about a prototype version of SDX. Um, uh, the sort of full launch has been pushed back by a year, but they modified their business plan. Uh, initially, it intended to tokenize traditional banking assets first and then exotic assets like real estate further down the line. Now it's going to do the reverse. So what I wanted to ask is, uh, Richard, do you see similar experiences? I know you've been involved with the FCA Sandbox, London Stock Exchange Group. Are people looking uh, – has the conversation moved from uh, sort of the sort of listed market instruments, securities and so on, towards the uh, kind of uh, – alternative, the AIF, AIFMD sort of asset base? Um, I don't know if the conversation's moved. I have to say, I mean, when I first started looking at this space, I got about three calls a week with people wanting to tokenize art or real estate. Mm. Um, some of those were more interesting than others. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, from our perspective, we're, we're focused on, as I was sort of saying at the beginning, the automation of securities issuance, be that on a blockchain or through kind of all the existing infrastructure clearing systems and stuff, which we might come on to. Yeah. Um, so in terms of my sort of day-to-day -day work and our day-to-day -day work, we, we are very focused on that and talking to people who are looking at issuing, you know, typically regulated securities, which they might do, as I say, in the existing format or, or on a blockchain. Um, we do come across some of the more sort of prosaic projects. Um, I would say we're, we're less focused on those now than perhaps we were, uh, uh, you know, previously. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I think with all of these things, there has to be a particularly sort of the digital asset thing, there has to be a genuine use case for the blockchain what is blockchain bringing you that you cannot do otherwise i think too many of the projects that i saw were we have this idea and we really want to use blockchain for it because it's the latest mm -hmm. kind of buzzword blockchain and, is an excuse yeah and and you got all these things that were kind of trying to shoehorn sort of blockchain into it mm -hmm. um I don't really subscribe to that. I think, you know, blockchain is great for means of settlement. It, it's great perhaps for injecting liquidity, but there are a whole load of regulatory hurdles around that into something that might be illiquid, mm -hmm. real estate assets or funds, et cetera. Um, potentially art, maybe. So but, is, is there something about that um, conversation around getting access, pushing liquidity into assets that are illiquid, though, that is uh, sort of destroying what makes those attractive assets? Because if I make them more liquid, do I destroy their yield? Is there something about the fact that I can't touch it for 7 to 10 to 12 years uh, you know, and the, the, there is no secondary market, what makes that make sense? And also are the lessons from the financial crisis of once we start sort of packaging and repackaging uh, different liquidity and rehypothecating it, we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. There are definitely lessons from the financial crisis. I, I don't want to take that analogy too far because 
the point, of course, around what happened in the financial crisis was it was an entirely systemic point done on mass scale, whereas blockchain is still very niche. But I think also there was a lack of traceability, right? So you you had people um, creating CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, full of securities um, that were getting a AAA rating, but nobody actually knew what was going on inside the contracts. Nobody had uh, flipped inside them. So having something where you do have at least a degree of understanding of where the asset is and who the owner is um, and what its rating could be for argument's sake could be powerful. Um, the the technical cynic will say, well, you could build that centralized, um, but actually building that centralized solution has always been a question of like, well, who's the centralized authority then? Which in, in um, financial market infrastructure has always been challenging. Um, so the data about the asset and the asset itself being exchanged gets really really interesting. Coming back to to, to six briefly. I think it is interesting that you're seeing some of these things. There's uh, there's this, there's uh, HQLAX, there's yourselves as sort of the three, I, I would say, big players in that sort of European-based um, FMI looking at doing things, uh, tokenizing real-world assets. Would you say that's um, how you see it? And, and what do you say the sort of next 12 to 18 months for this space looks like? Do you think clients are getting into it in a big way? There's definitely interest and traction. Um, I, I would, you know, put us in terms of if we're tokenizing, we're looking at it in, in say, fixed income. Uh, we've done some stuff, as you, you identified at the beginning, in the equity space. But I think, frankly, for certainly for digital assets, I think fixed income is more interesting than, than equity because of – Probably we don't have time to go into, but various mm. regulatory hurdles behind that. Um, regulatory because reasons, I think, is, is yeah, a good right. way to put it. It's because a lawyer said so. Yeah, I think that's a separate podcast all in its own right. One day we'll do a reg nerd podcast. Very good. Um, so uh, so what's the sort of next 12 to 18 months look like? As I sort of say at the beginning, I think I, we think there will be more development in the automation space around primary markets over the next 12 to 18 months with the use of digital assets being an interesting, innovative add-on to that um, and effectively part of that overall in automation story because whereas it's really adding value, it adds value at settlement and prospectively at, at post-trade. So I think it, given both of those, though, it, uh, it was interesting talking to the guys at, at Six last week. What they were saying is you know, they can build a new market structure, but if the banks can't connect into it and then the buy side can't connect into it and the market participants generally are struggling with their own legacy systems, there's a real challenge there of like, great, somebody's built this blockchain thing that's super fast and zoomy, but I've got a three-year release cycle just to deal with all of the MIFID cleanup that I had and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So there's there's probably a time horizon here that's like, who's going to take advantage of this first? I think you're right. And I don't think 12 to 18 months is probably the right time horizon mm -hmm. for that. I think it's too short. Um, I think realistically, for institutions to be using this on a a larger scale, you're probably looking more like five, maybe even ten years. But doesn't that present an opportunity? If if we're seeing the maturity in the platforms, if somebody could find another route to market, uh, they could find another way of working with a specific asset class, a specific investor base. Could fintech not come to institutional banking? Could you not see the banks themselves start to do something that challenges their traditional infrastructure? Yeah, uh, setup? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I think you will, and we are seeing it. That's you know Santander, great example of that. Um, so, yeah, you actually will see that and you will see them trying things and pushing the boundaries and doing more and more interesting things. And certainly, and I, I would imagine you will see them building on the things that have been done today so they'll get ever more complex. Mm. You'll probably see that within 12 to 18 months. Well, you certainly will see that within 12 to 18 months. 
but it in 18 months we're not going to be the whole market's that chain. Yeah, the whole market's there is, is, is a different question, I think. But uh, I think there's there's probably some listeners out there that are thinking about what's the first thing I do and, and how do I get started? And I think something to be said for understanding where the real um, material benefit is, is question number one. Two, where are the material compliance challenges? And then three, uh, kind of okay, so how do I actually execute on this? And if you can answer those three questions with credibility to your management and you can do so in a way where uh, you're learning at low cost um, what where the value is and you're kind of disqualifying the bad ideas really, really quickly and you're getting to something that a client would want and pay for, I think you're in good space. All right, uh, it's time for the ad read. Um, so I've got to shill it like uh, like it's hot. Um, so if you ha- do you have any plans on the 23rd to the 24th of October? Uh, if not, you can join 11FS at Cordicon 2019 in London, one of the top blockchain events in the world, uh, hosted by blockchain platform provider, good old friends at R3, shout out Todd McDonald. Uh, Cordicon, a once-in-a-year event, brings together more than 800 blockchain leaders, and they're going to do stuff like uh, interactive sessions, use case presentations, and tech talks. They have Dev Day on day one and Biz Day on day two. Uh, you can check out both of those and sign up is it's free, but space is limited. So head over to r3.com forward slash Cordicon for more info. See you there. All right, on with the show. Uh, next story comes from Coindesk, and this is about Fidelity. Uh, Fidelity's digital assets unit are going to provide custody for a Bitcoin derivatives yield fund. Um, of course, uh, Fidelity support Bitcoin options uh, and as major exchanges make crypto derivatives trading more accessible to investors. Uh, Los Angeles-based Wave Financial has launched the Wave BTC Income and Growth Digital Fund, touting the fund to be the first crypto derivatives-based yield fund on the market. Uh, the Wave Wave Fund plans to generate monthly income with the premium from selling call options with strikes 20% higher than the current price at the time, and it aims to distribute a dividend at 1%, uh, 1.5% net asset value of the Bitcoin held in the fund, potentially resulting in an 18% annual yield. Um, it looks like a fairly vanilla product, Richard, but on a, on a non-vanilla asset. Um, can we unpack some of this language for people that don't work in financial markets? Um, so uh, talk to me about... Um, Kind of where where have we gone here? The crypto derivatives based yield fund. How do you explain that to person on the street? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> so <laughs> let's start with crypto, <laughs> um, right? So look, uh, uh, derivatives and hedging is a fairly sort of typical financial instrument that's used to to manage exposure to things like interest rates or currency. So if you've borrowed in one currency and you need to be in another currency, you can, you can like for instance, if you're in the UK and the pound is tanking against the euro, precisely right. Um, so that's you know obviously that that's a that's an age old product's been used by companies to hedge their exposure to various things they don't want to be exposed to for many years. Um, this, as far as I understand it, and and I've met the guys at Wave. It's an impressive offering, um, uh, and probably they they will explain it. I would imagine far better than I will. But um, you're looking now to do that with with crypto and in, in particular Bitcoin and, and the hedge of that risk. Um, Which, you know, historically, if I was to go to my Fidelity um, platform, uh, not Fidelity Digital Assets, but Fidelity itself, I would be able to select a number of funds and I could buy uh, an index against the FTSE 100 and I could buy an index against gold, uh, an ETF against gold. I can buy all kinds of funds that 
organizations like Wave had put together and Fidelity then sells to me, the end customer, and Fidelity creates their own funds as well. So this is another one of those, but it's a very specialist type of fund in that it's uh, taking the the derivatives against that uh, sort of uh, derivative trading uh, against those options on Bitcoin, and then the profits from that are then yielded back to the investor. So it's, um, you know, this is pretty advanced stuff, but I guess it's, um, yeah, there are others out there. There's um, Eaton Vance Tax, managed by uh, uh, the White Income Fund. Uh, there's also uh, a good track record here. So Ben Sai is the managing partner of Wave Financial, led alternative investments in the APAC region for Alliance Bernstein. So I think, is there a trend here of, um, this is Fidelity, this is a fund manager with track record. This feels pretty credible and grown up, um, but it also feels very oldie-worldie financial services. And, you know, has, has Bitcoin lost its edge, maybe? Has it lost its scariness? Is that a good thing? I think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from that world, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you would say that, wouldn't you? Uh, well, quite. But I think if people are serious about digital assets, um, stability in digital assets, liquidity in digital assets, a use case mainstream use cases that are going to see it do many of the things that I would say some of the early adopters were hoping it would. The reality of that situation is it will need to be adopted and used and by mainstream large institutions. Otherwise, it will forever remain a niche product. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, those out there who are not immersed in blockchain and crypto and all the rest of it are not going to start using it unless... um, effectively the large institutions that they deal with all day long, be that at a you know, day to day or or even if it's just your pension and you get a letter a couple of times a year. I think there's something interesting about Bitcoin set out to be your own bank, but then the people who are already banks have started taking that asset and banking it for you in, in effect. Um, and not everybody uh, kind of wants to be their own bank. But also then if you listen to like a Jameson Lop, he's like, yeah, sure, that's fine. But then there is a cost to that. But you can you still use Bitcoin in a way where you custody the asset yourself. And I think that optionality is kind of unique to it in, in a digital asset sense. Yeah, I mean, I think, as I say, for mainstream adoption, the custodying of asset yourself is just not a suitable model for large stream institutions. So if there's going to be, you know, really significant, you know, we talked before about mainstream market adoption of blockchain, that's not going to happen unless digital assets can be properly owned and managed through effective custody solutions, you know, and and, and that's a lot of, you know, Santander, you know, they, mm. they custody that asset, they used custody solution that, that we provide for them to do that. Um, but unless you can come up with properly regulated custody solutions, effectively giving people an on-off ramp to the blockchain, a safe on-off ramp to the blockchain that they trust, then you will not drive mainstream adoption because holding keys privately in notes on your phone or post-it notes or worse um, is just not a suitable way to manage assets on a lot of That scale. consumer experience piece thing is, is really, really powerful. And the intermediaries do play a role. It was uh, Melton Dumois put out a tweet storm recently sort of looking at, uh, you know, against the original vision of Bitcoin, actually, where the values accrued is to the intermediaries in the crypto asset world. Uh, and increasingly, we're seeing that's where the money is to be made. Um, so by building something that was supposed to get rid of middlemen, we've created a load of middlemen, um, which actually, uh, if these... People are doing something different, cheaper, better, faster, more transparent. Maybe that's not a bad thing, um, but we could risk recreating the maze and recreating the problems. There's a really, I mean, that's probably a, a topic for another day, but there is something really interesting in that because I think as soon as you have a large functioning market, it will always attract middlemen. Because it's it's it almost an emerging principle, say, isn't it? 
I can make this easier for you. And that's what middlemen do. And every single industry you see, it's got middlemen who make a lot of money out of it. Well, according to the block, um, SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce says that digital assets could one day be the money of the internet. And this came from the uh, DACOM event that the guys at Solidus Labs put together in partnership with Global Digital Finance. So shout out to those guys. Um, so SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce made some interesting comments at that compliance summit. Um, that they view, she views digital assets as transaction mechanisms, which is interesting rather than assets. Um, store of value, I think, is a really important function, she says. Uh, I do think we'll see as the technology changes that they become much more the money of the internet. Uh, on the topic of regulation and speed of response, um, she says when uh, she came to the SEC, one of uh, her hopes was to change the way it addresses innovation. And in her first round, she saw it was slow. Um, so interesting that uh, I think the regulators are recognizing the need to respond to innovation faster. I think that's that's an interesting point, but that's a global trend. We see that kind of around the world. Uh, but this point about the money of the internet, uh, it's an interesting uh, choice of words. Um, I guess digital assets, though, could imply central bank digital currency. It could imply real world assets. It could imply crypto assets. So, how, what, what do you what do you read from that? Do you think it's uh, just a, a nice statement, or do you think there's something more going on there? I think there's an extent to which it's a nice statement, if I'm being honest, because the digital money of the internet. Well, PayPal does that for us, right? So mm. we've got already, e-money. We've got e-money. We can already do that. Um, I can do it on my phone. So there's plenty of digital representations of money to use. I would argue that's digitized money, right? So um, if you think about the experience of PayPal, uh, yes, I can move money to anybody on PayPal near instantly, but there are still quite heavy fees involved. But ultimately, it's a digitization of an analog process. Like the Visa MasterCard network took paper uh, processes and checking, and then they sort of added a card to it. And then over the years, you had the clacker machines that were bits of paper that were sent off. Then the clacker machines were replaced by Magstripe but sent the same information down down a sort of a network. And so you've had this sort of uh, evolution of, it's almost like sedimentary rock, year and year and year of building on what was there before and what was there before and what was there before. With a digital asset, you have an opportunity to really, from first principles, rethink how money works, is issued, and floats throughout the financial system. Well, yeah, and that's look, that's interesting. You're right, and that's interesting. Um, I think the point you make about store of value, though, is key. So, you know, we were speaking about wave and the ability to hedge volatility and so forth. Um, the volatility at the moment, volatility at the moment in digital assets as they stand, is is way too big for it to be an effective digitally effective store of value and therefore money of the internet to use. Uh, maybe means of uh, transfer but um, store of value it sort of works if you're if you like volatility then then it's not a bad thing you can trade on it as a store of value or if you, you like want, to trade but oh, if you spec- want to use money of the internet to buy stuff so as a means of means that. of transfer it, it, yeah it's, it's it's a little bit more difficult uh, but i think there is something there that um sort of uh, the sec are making these public statements regulators are starting to make more uh, sort of opening statements to to kind of at least show that they understand innovation and that a conversation can be had yeah which is really interesting and, and I look i think the points you make around well could it be for example digital assets through central banks or digital assets through things like utility settlement coin or other kind of you know large scale stable or coin even, projects like uh, that. the stable coins movement. correct and and sort of large scale stable coins that's actually what we did to set i mean the the one of the key points about the santander issuance was we achieved dvp on a blockchain um with a basically a stable asset a stable coin concept 
mm-hmm. um, by digitising, you know, money that that was sat in a in a real world bank account. Um, those kind of things where you can have, you know, reduce the volatility in order to have an effective means of payment. That's quite interesting. It's interesting, though, that that would work a lot like PayPal in that you lock the money in a bank account somewhere and then you sort of go into this other network where the money can move around and then it comes out of the other side of that network and then ultimately it goes from the bank account where it was to the bank account yeah, where it's gone. Yeah, correct. Which is, uh, and, and so it's an intermediary solution. But yeah. if you were to do that on a much larger scale, central banks or mm-hmm. consortiums of you know very large commercial banks... Then you have real settlement. Yeah, then... then, then you would never be taking it out of. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't worry about that first bit. You would just manage the digital record of it. And that, that's and that is the money. Yeah, and this is the model for that, but it's too small scale for it to be. So there's a, there's a really interesting scale point for where that flips. Listen, um, there's a couple more stories to get through this week. Um, we'll, uh, we'll just briefly mention them. Uh, first one comes from Ledger Insights. So this is about Barclays and Overstock leading an $8 million funding round for identity startup Evanim. Um, and, of course, um, Barclays Ventures has led that. Um, and founded in 2013, Evanim initiated the Sovereign Network for Identity. Both organizations aim to get wider adoption of self-sovereign identity standards. Uh, Evanim uh, revealed that some 50 organizations it's been working with include Barclaycard, Deutsche Telekom, Novartis, Irish Life, and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Feels to me like self-sovereign identity is becoming massive, especially uh, decentralized identity in that concept. Uh, it's something that uh, was was briefly really popular. There are some nerds out there that really feel for it, but it it seems to me like it's been one of those subjects that was the third or the fourth one down and is now slowly gaining credibility. Yeah. And this move by Barclays is a really interesting it, one. It's really, really, that, that I think is really, really interesting. Um, we had, I remember going to a meeting with some fairly senior people at one of the very large global banks, early on in this process, and that was so much the direction of travel that they saw for this. They were like, that is where the real value of a lot of this lies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's very interesting. I think there are some people who I really trust out there in uh, very large organizations and some very small innovative ones who have been saying the same thing for a while, that ultimately um, the reason we can't change how payments work even with a new technology is because we haven't changed how identity works. If you look at the big problem that the crypto exchanges are having, it's all identity problems, KYC, AML. If you look at the nature of anti-money laundering, it's really a how do you identify somebody problem. And when people don't have documents and when you don't have or when you do have documents, but it's all paper documents. Yes, this can be solved by national identity schemes, and some countries have those, but then you've got privacy issues. So post-Cambridge Analytica, this is a really, really topical subject and a really crucial one. No, and and it's why we have focused on that as well and have a sort of digital user management system as part of our stack, because you're exactly right. You you can't do one without the other. So if you... and, And going back to your first question on the SEC, how do you manage the regulatory risk around this? It's exactly through that. So having being able to offer a sophisticated user management KYC investor profiling tool that then leads you through to further products down the line is utterly key to to actually a, a, a proper solution. If you get decentralized identity right, it's it's the Higgs boson of financial services. It's where all of the cost is. It's where all of the risk is. Uh, and actually, it's where all the privacy concerns are. So I was at an event uh, recently with um, kind of the – with a financial services regulator and a, um, a kind of – 
I guess what you call them a privacy-based regulator for for a, a European set of bodies, shall we say? Um, and it was really interesting watching the debate between these two organisations of where do you prevent money laundering and terrorist financing risk versus what's invalidating privacy. And seeing this debate play out post Cambridge Analytica to me is one of the most interesting things in the space. And uh, once you really get into what Sovereign are doing um, and the credibility somebody like a Barclays brings to this, uh, I think it's uh, it's going to be really interesting. And also the social contract that a bank has um, versus um, a social network. They may have a lot of people that they're monetizing, but that's sort of the deal. Whereas a bank's deal is, now we make money off financial products, you know, and you might not trust us necessarily to always have your best financial interests at heart, but we have to protect your data. Like So, so where's that conversation moving? It's going to be an interesting one to watch. Alrighty, last story this week uh, is about Ledger X crying foul. The CFTC says there's no favoritism. Uh, so this is about uh, US-based cryptocurrency options exchange Ledger X claiming the CFTC has acted unfairly in favoring backed. Uh, Paul Chow, the firm's CEO, went off in a series of tweets um, in August Ledger X's announcement that its Omni platform, uh, which was originally marketed as an options and future platform on social media, um, said uh, that would be available and they had a green light. Um, a spokesperson for the CFTC told the block that the firm didn't have the green light uh, to launch physically derived Bitcoin futures. Um, so it's interesting that there's there's this kind of disconnect still between some some companies and, and regulators. It would be very surprising though if, if uh, a regulator had let something slip that hadn't been through rounds and rounds of approvals. Um, is that your experience as well? Definitely, yes. <laughs> Alrighty, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, one from the block. Uh, the NBA have rejected uh, Nets player Spencer Dinwiddie's attempt to tokenize his $34.4 million contract. Uh, it turns out basketball is coming to blockchain. I was super wrong about that when I said it a couple of weeks ago. Um, Coindesk, uh, Ripple expands into Iceland with acquisition of crypto trading firm. Coindesk, Ant Financial, and Bayer to jointly develop blockchain for agriculture. That whole um, supply chain blockchain space seems really, really hot, and we, we covered that a lot on uh, when we were at Cybos. Um, CNBC, Facebook's Libra project is apparently a walled garden, according to a Ripple exec. And coming from the block, uh, Ukrainian government plans to legalize cryptocurrency. Interesting one. So do check out all of those articles if you're interested. Okay, now it's time for Twitter of the Week. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from David Marcus at David Marcus, who combines, uh, well, a Wall Street Journal story with his own thoughts. Uh, so the Wall Street Journal story that he quotes says, Visa, MasterCard, and other key financial partners are allegedly reconsidering their involvement in Facebook's Libra people familiar with the matter say. That's the headline. So David Marcus says, felt like addressing this. Number one, the official first wave of Labour Association members will be formalized in weeks to come. Continued. Number two, change of this magnitude is hard and requires courage. It will be a long journey. For Libra to succeed, it needs committed members. And while I have no knowledge of specific organizations' plans to not step up, commitment to the mission is more important than anything else. Number three, part of this article suggesting we weren't on top of or didn't share detailed information about how to secure Libra and protect the network against illegal activity is categorically untrue. 
interesting stuff. Um, what do you what do you see a this um, kind of public response to the Wall Street Journal piece coming out of uh, an executive's Twitter account um, in helping or hindering leader from uh, leader Libra from an optics standpoint? Uh, and secondly, uh, how are you viewing Libra? So. Um. I'm probably not going to make too much comment on on the first one in terms of what does it mean coming from a particular executive's account, um, not really knowing him that well. It, it wouldn't be appropriate to comment. Um, Libra, really interesting. Um, I think the point he makes about adoption is key. I think we need to know a little bit more. Uh, so the walled garden point coming out of there as well is key. Um, I I think it's too early to say, frankly. Um you know, obviously, it's a fascinating project. It's one to be looked at very closely. Uh, I think time will tell. It depends, frankly, on who who are these unknown partners that ultimately come into it. Does that give it the impetus it needs? Or is the reaction of, I would say, some of the sort of people who will be watching that space and concerned about it to steer away from it, either do their own thing, do something different, mm-hmm. um, Take things in a different direction. I, I frankly think it's too early to call. I think it's. I think it's been interesting to watch David Marcus consistently sort of uh, try and use Twitter as a as a pulpit to you know as a soapbox to be able to uh, kind of redress a lot of the concerns and usually in a in a really articulate manner. Uh, so the the one around is Libra impacting sovereignty, um, which you know they've now sort of come out and said they're changing how the basket works. They're talking to central banks, so hopefully they can disarm that one. The one one around anti money laundering. I think the I would argue. My analysis is there was an assumption going in that, well, it would work like cryptocurrency exchanges. You regulate the endpoints uh, and the wallets, but not the the network itself. But of course, the network itself has a legal entity, unlike Bitcoin, uh, where you can say that there's not one legal entity that really controls the network. It is truly decentralized. So the the sort of some of the design choices behind the Libra technical implementation, which are very, very interesting. Um, every engineer I speak to that's you know, tenured uh, will tell you it, there are some interesting ideas in there. But in making those practical choices around how they build the community of uh, kind of these association members, they created a throat to choke. And by having that, that throat to choke didn't give answers. Facebook gave answers. So everybody assumed it was Facebook that was really secretly running the thing. So the optics of these things are always really, really important. Alrighty, um, back to the here and now. Uh, just before we leave you, we have uh, an interview with Matthew Pollard, who is founder and CFO at Archax, which was recorded back at Money 2020. Um, but uh, good old uh, Matthew takes us through quite a lot about Archax, who are a really interesting company, but also how we're seeing the evolution of digital assets, which was very on topic for this show. So here on Blockchain Insider, of course, I am still Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Matthew Pollard, who's the co-founder of Archax. How are you doing, Matthew? I am doing extremely well. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It feels overdue. It feels like you're part of the family that never did join us on the show yet. So um, what's going on, man? Uh, Tell us a bit about your background. Sure. And tell us, uh, because you came from the uh, hedge fund world and finance and that sort of stuff. You're wearing a suit, there are shoes, they look black, they're not brown, you know the rules of the city. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely right. So I set up Archax uh, just over a year ago. And before that, I'd spent 10 years on the buy side. Mm -hmm. And that was across various hedge funds. And before that, I trained as a chartered accountant at Deloitte. Mm -hmm. And before that, I got a degree in computer science. So I am cool 
two ways. <laughs> You've got all of the call from all of the angles. And, and, and that's an interesting place to be, uh, I guess, looking at the world of digital assets from, given you came from that world. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the buy side especially, I always find really interesting as a, uh, as a potential beneficiary of digital assets. But like, let's step back. Yeah. Like, what, what do you see a digital asset being, meaning and representing for the world of finance? Like, what, what drew you to it? What made you think this thing could make a yeah. difference to my day job? So the, the kind of seed of me wanting to make the leap over into the world of digital was at the last place I was at, I was the CFO there, and I was also responsible for running the family office from a non-investment point of view. And the family office requested we get ex exposure to digital assets for them. Yes. And so we did through um, a couple of tracker products that the uh, fund could custody. And then also we set up a fund. And going through the process of setting up a fund, we realized how um, hard it would be for an institution to properly get access to digital assets based on the current market infrastructure. Yes. So that set the seed. We decided to set up Archax to build a venue that would allow institution, regulated institutions like ours to onboard and trade their digital assets. And back then, the, the idea was for Bitcoin and security tokens. And the idea is still that, but with a focus on security tokens for now, because we're going after our regulations with the FCA. Good. So I think, um, I think the most exciting thing is uh, institutions, <laughs> from a Bitcoin point of view, they want to get access to this new asset class. They like the volatility. They like that it's an emerging market. And from an institutional point of view, from a market maker point of view, from a hedge fund point of view, emerging markets are where there's a lot of alpha. There's yeah. a lot of money to be made. And there aren't a lot of markets with real alpha left, especially yeah. given beta has now overtaken Absolutely. alpha products. And if everything goes towards beta, yeah. then what's the point? What's in, left? Yeah. How do we find this yield? How do we find this alpha? So I think. Um, you know, back when I used to work for a, a fund of hedge funds, you'd see lots of quantitative funds setting up their algorithms and their servers in emerging market stock exchanges to try and capture that alpha before it gets arbitraged away. Yeah. The very same thing has happened with Bitcoin. Over the last few years, you've seen high-frequency funds and, and institutional names like Two Sigma mm -hmm. and others realize that cross-exchange arbitrage is a very, very good way to make money. Yes. So I think that, uh, that same mindset will happen with security tokens and digital securities. All right, so let's define security tokens, like security. Yeah. We know those, we do. shares, bonds, yeah. like good old securities. Good old securities. You can buy them from your local broker. It's They're probably in your pension fund. We yeah. know what a security is. Yeah. Security token, what's one of them? Very, very similar but the technology used to deliver that security mm -hmm. is distributed ledger technology. It's, you still have a legally enforceable right to the underlying. It's still structured in a proper way. It's still regulated. But the, uh, the very existence and issuance of this security, of this unit, is, is, is powered by distributed ledger technology. And so what's different about it? What does that give me that I didn't have before? It gives you, uh, from an issuer point of view, it gives you the ability to create issue and, uh, and the ongoing lifecycle management of this security in the, in the example of equity in, in a capital stack. It's a very efficient way of doing things on an issuance basis, but also around the lifecycle for secondary trading, mm -hmm. for corporate governance, for, for, for distribution of dividends, um, 
and other bits so and bobs So all of like those that. actions around it. So yeah. if it was a share, if yeah. I had a corporate action yeah. like a dividend, like yeah. a like a change of board member or whatever, yeah. then that becomes way cheaper, way faster. Oh. Which is what a lot of people looked at DLT for originally yeah. was give me the efficiency. Yeah. But actually what they started doing was doing their paper process on DLT, yeah. which sort of reminds me when they started building iron bridges, they built them the way they were used to build uh, kind of brick bridges yes, with arches. Sure, sure, sure. And actually, when you build an iron bridge the way you would build a brick bridge, it's weaker than the brick. Okay, yeah, and yeah, yeah. so by using a new technology to do an old process, you're not actually getting a benefit. Right. With a token, I can start to rethink my process because yeah. everybody can see the updates immediately. Yep. Um, and we don't have to worry about reconciliation because yeah. we all know where the token is. We all know the yeah. state of it. So the action can just kind of cascade through. So it's kind of, kind of compelling. So these security tokens, what what actually is it? Let's let's drill that down because I know what a, a, a share a stock certificate looks yep. like. Yep. Is a token a different thing? So, uh, so I when I talk of security tokens, I think of regulated instruments, whether it be equity or debt. I view it as a unit uh, created using a blockchain protocol, mm -hmm. whether it's Ethereum or uh, after recorder or a Bitcoin sidechain or Stellar. Or whatever, but it's a it's a it's a unit of ownership. It's a it's a legally enforceable unit of ownership. Um, but there is still a paper registration, or so the the for companies that go through the primary issuance process of equity in Europe, at least, there is a uh, central registrar that 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 is responsible for the master books and records of the issuance in Europe. And in the US, it's uh, it's the DTCC mm -hmm. that provides that kind of service. So the the uh, fractionalized unit of ownership exists on a blockchain, and that is a very good way to manage your cap table, to manage dividends, to manage distributions and voting. So effectively, all of my management moves to DLT yes. and digital, but there's still that paper registry to be backwardly compatible with the legal system because of the underlying country. 100%. And that's, and that's what this very innovative space has to deal with. We have the law as it stands and the things that have to be done to, to comply with existing rules and regs. And then we've got the innovative side of the distributed ledger technology. And as it stands at the moment, you still have to talk to the old world because it's the law. Uh, but I'd be interested to see how this space evolves over the next two, three, four, five years. So you're a uh, part of the Global Digital Finance Security Token Working Group. Yep. What challenges are in front of security tokens that felt the need to become a chair of a working group in a global organization uh, that's going to go look at this security token subject? Absolutely. So I, I was given the opportunity. I grabbed it with both hands. It was, it, it was a chance for me as a founder of Archax to uh, get the get input from all the members of the security token working group into the document we have over 80 people everybody's got an opinion everybody wants to contribute we have people from all around the world with an especially strong presence in the us yeah so the, the us has their way of doing it europe has their way of doing it uh, we've got uh, also an asian presence as well and and it was it was uh, fantastic we are through the initial consultation and the public consultation will be out sometime in june and it was it was great, but it is it is a, 
it is a nascent space and people are wrestling with how much innovation they can cram into the issuance of equity and debt using distributed ledger technology while complying with legacy laws and not annoying the regulator. It's a really interesting tension. It seems like the benefits of security tokens are there, but actually the ability to capture those benefits, you know, there's a number of challenges and not least of all, having everybody understand that shift from the analog paper process to how much analog paper process do I need to keep to comply with the regulations yes. and what could I do yes. if the, the regulations were a little bit more malleable to, to yeah. what the technology enabled for the benefit of consumers, for the benefit of society. Yes. So in no way to reduce the quality, actually to increase the quality yes. of market fairness and efficiency. So how do you think about the regulation in this space? Is it, is it challenging? Is it differing globally? Like what, what, are, the, yeah. what are the issues? So I'll talk about my experience, and I've had a very, very positive experience with the FCA to date. We've been speaking to them for nearly 12 months. Our multilateral trading facility application is in, yeah. and the speed at which they've assigned as the case manager, the speed at which they've come back with questions and feedback, and the diligence they've shown uh, has exceeded my expectations, and it's really good to see. And they're asking all the right questions, especially around custody as well. So as a digital venue, that will be regulated, something that makes us different from traditional finances, we will also be custody and customer assets. The FCA has to ask questions around how you're going to get your permissions and how you're going to act as a custodian. So that's, that, that, that's been very interesting. I think an advantage we have uh, here in Europe uh, versus the US is um, more, uh, more of a general understanding and regulators working together in Europe my impression and understanding is in the US, there's a bit of tension between the regulators there and they're still trying, trying, trying to work that out. It's, it's an interesting challenge. So where do you think this space is all going to go if you start looking in your crystal ball? Yep. Uh, the, the one big thing that you hear the people on Twitter pumping the market saying is the institutions are coming, the institutions are coming. Given that's your background yes. institutionally, yep. which institutions and when? Yeah, yeah. So for an institution to deal with a counterparty, a counterparty needs to have all the appropriate regulation, they need to be structured properly, they need to be in the most credible jurisdiction they can, and they need to tick all the boxes for that, for that institution's risk and compliance department to get happy. So I think uh, institutions will start to put significant amounts of money with, in the digital asset space when regulation is clearer, and that's coming. I, I don't know how uh, the, the FCA consultation paper that was released in January and the response will be out in the summer. I've got high hopes for that because we were involved in the consultation process, but when there's more regulatory clarity around Bitcoin utility, security tokens, then there'll be a firmer footing for institutions to start to get involved. But institutions also need regulated custody. Yes. Big asset managers have fiduciary duty to take client funds and put them in safe places. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the issues we had at the hedge fund I was at previously. There's no way, there's no realistic way that us as a $1.4 billion asset manager could raise $50 million from investors in a Cayman fund and put that money with uh, exchanges that were not incredible jurisdictions and, yeah. didn't, and didn't have regulated uh, custody. It's, it's just not possible. Yeah. So that needs to happen and, it, and it's starting to happen. You, you've seen BitGo in the US get qualified custodian status. You've seen a DACC that was close to getting it be acquired by BACT. It's, it's such an important part of it. For an institution to even look at you, you have to know that if they give you your assets, they're safe.
Yeah, that's a really powerful thing. So custody is another conversation in its own right. It is. Uh, listen, thank you so much for joining. Um, where can people find out more about you and Archax? Sure. So our website is www.archax.com. Uh, please check it out and you can send me an email, matthew at archax.com, if you have any questions. Thank you so much for being on Blockchain Insider. You. You're very welcome. Thank you. Already, that wraps up this week's show. Just to remind you, everybody, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. We're also super excited to finally bring you the first glimpse of our most ambitious project to date. Um, for years, the story of the financial crisis has been told in isolation, the bad things that happened, the global fallout, the effect on consumers. But we wanted to tell the untold story how UK financial services evolved out of the crisis and created the perfect ecosystem and grew into a thriving global fintech capital we have today. Uh, we conducted over 20 interviews with leaders of the UK's biggest banks, regulators, fintechs, sharing their first-hand experiences of the changes that propelled the UK into its position as a global fintech hub. Uh, the trailer is available now on 11years.film, and as this episode comes out, you'll also be able to view it. So check out 11years.film, and let us know your thoughts on Twitter at 11FS. And of course, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, the subscribe button's right there. Go ahead and hit it. You know you want to. Do it. Do it before you like skip to the end of the podcast. Clear it. Just, just subscribe. Uh, alrighty, uh, where can people find out more about you, Richard? Uh, our website, www.navura.com, uh, and they're very welcome to get in touch with us, uh, and we'd be very happy to talk to you. Brilliant. Thank you so much. You can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, or you can email me directly, simon at 11fs.com. A big thank you, as always, to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producers Laura, Petra, and Hannah, and, of course, Alex, our editor. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.